for listening to the Plain State Podcast, produced by the Department of English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. In this episode, Professor Matt Cohen interviews Bianca Swift about her poetry and her experiences as an undergraduate. How are you doing, Bianca? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing all right. I feel like we should introduce ourselves to the loyal listeners. You and I have been doing this kind of thing for a long, long time. About three years, right? Really? Right. And so these folks are just coming in to the middle of a conversation that you and I don't even understand. Right, correct. So maybe we should introduce ourselves. I agree. I'll, I, seriously, I'll tell you what I know about you. Okay. And then you tell me what you know about me. Okay, keep it fun. And we will correct the record. <laughs> okay. Okay. You are a undergraduate student at the University of Nebraska. Mm-hmm. You are from Omaha. Mm-hmm. Yes. Two in a row. And let's see, you're a sophomore? No. <laughs> you're a junior. Mm-hmm. So this is terrible. This means you're going to leave us soon. It does. I'm already feeling a sense of loss. Okay. Uh, and you are a poet. Among other things, you're a poet. Yes. Great. Um, that was all correct. I am, however, a junior. Okay. Um, <laughs> this makes me so sad. But uh, what, what is the most interesting thing I left out? You left I out. I just didn't know. But you did not know. I... Interesting? Um, I've been writing poetry for 10 years. I've written a book. Um, that's pretty interesting. That's awesome. Yeah. What is the most boring thing that I did not know? That you didn't know? About you. Well, now all I can think about are the interesting things. But, <laughs> but the most boring thing um, is that... I did laundry the other day. It was pretty boring. It was terrible. Yeah. Yeah, I did too, really though. I've <laughs> never been able to make it real. I've been doing laundry my whole life. That's not true. I'm a poor mom. Okay, I've been doing laundry for a long time, right. and I've never been able to make it fun. So. Yeah. Yeah. If you get, like, enough scent. Sometimes the washer will flood. That's pretty fun. Right. <laughs> there's variety. I'll admit there's a variety. Yeah. Sometimes the, sometimes the dryer walks, walks down the... Uh, you know, down the hallway. Walks away? Yeah, it scoots. Oh, okay. It's like a little droid. Because okay. <laughs> <laughs> I filled it wrong. Anyway, I never learned. So, what do you know about me? What do I know about you? Matt Cohen, I learned earlier, is a, he's a doctorate. He's got a doctorate. I do. He's a professor. Yep. He, something, something, digital humanities. That sounds good. <laughs> um, <clears throat> he's got a brown dog. I do. He was divorced, and but now he's married. Yes. And I feel like there are like other more boring, plain things that I should say. And then we have only had one class together, though mm-hmm. technically. I but think. you're my boss. Yes, technically. I am your boss. Maybe we should talk about how that all happened. Oh yeah. That'd be so fun. you are. Let's see. You are among other things. Mm-hmm. Doing something called a UCARE project. What is UCARE? There's, it's an acronym, yeah. it, but it's undergraduate creative and research education. Something like something that. Something like that. Something like that. <laughs> um, so this is a research thing. You get paid to do research. I do get paid to do. But research. you had to come up with it. So what is you? What is your? What's your thing? So you mean what's a story? Or yeah, what's so story? this is a very interesting story. Um, once upon a time, on our University of Nebraska-Lincoln campus, there was a white supremacist. Um, his name was Redacted. 
And we, <laughs> he was on campus. He had like a horrible little video where he was like, oh, we can't attack black people now. We have to wait. And there was a meeting about that conversation because we were all like, that's pretty yikes. Mm -hmm. um, and I wrote two poems for that meeting. And I think it like got the attention of like maybe like a news source or something like that. And I had talked a lot about not being able to most likely continue going um, to this college because there was a white supremacist there. And um, one could argue that that was a danger to my safety. So... Hated broadcasting white supremacists. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Because there obviously there are many, many non-broadcasting white supremacists. This was a special situation. This is a unique one, yeah. say. Um, so then... After all this conversation with my mom, we would, we'd already like kind of decided that maybe I would go to Houston or my sister because she went to an HBCU and I'd go there. Mm. And so I ended up going to the idea committee because they wanted me to give some more information and talk about what they could do as separate colleges. The idea committee also has an acronym, but I also don't know it. Inclusivity. inclusivity diversity. Diversity. Yes. Something, something. The rest of it's good, too. Right. <laughs> um, so... Professor Kenneth Price happened to be on that, and I'm so glad that I was speaking particularly well that day. I brought note cards. I had planned it, because so, otherwise, who knows how this would go down. It's a lesson to us all. And so he was on the committee. I was talking about it. I was like, such and such, black people are people. Such and such, we're scared. Such and such, you know, all that good stuff. Um, and then he was like, hey, you speak well. <laughs> you are kind of good. I have a thing happening with Chesnut. And he's like, hey, this is very similar because he wrote about like the Wellington. Well, not Wellington. That's right. Yeah. The, the Wellington. The Wellington. Takeover yeah. Too. And then that had that just that was just after the Charlottesville rally, and so right. it was like a lot of parallels. And so I was like, that's really really interesting. So we started talking about that, and he was like, you're an undergraduate student, so legally I can't pay you, <laughs> but you care can. And I was like, sounds pretty good. And so here I am, still a junior, still haven't left yet. <laughs> nice. That is um, that is a heartening story, and um, I want to talk a little bit. I want to take just a step back mm -hmm. and talk about this Chestnut character, Charles Chestnut, who right. you who you mentioned as the kind of um, the basis for your project that you're doing. Can you say just a little more about? Charles Chestnut and... I can. I talk about Charles Chestnut a lot in my job. Charles Chestnut is, um, is, was, an African-American novelist and essayist who wrote a lot about African-American experiences and a lot of short stories involving that. And for my part, I write a lot about, and I kind of transcribe and encode the letters he sent to and from other members of the Black Intelligentsia. And what I'm focusing on right now, because I'm in my second year of you care, is that connection between what he wrote in his essays or what he wrote in his stories and what he was talking about with other members of the black academia at that time because i feel like a lot of times we examine um intellectuals or academics in a bubble the same way we talk about like martin luther king jr where we're like he was this one person but he wasn't like he had like a whole bunch of other people supporting him and around him and like he wasn't like the main character of the story he was just like a player just like everyone else was and so that's what I deal with. Yeah, with or we tend to look at one piece of writing 
maybe a short story, maybe mm-hmm. Life from Birmingham Jail, and then we kind of miss all of the connections that actually made that thing so powerful in its time. I agree. So we're talking, so with Charles Chestnut, we're talking the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So that's a time, so we'd, we'd be talking about him communicating with W.B. Du Bois. Booker T. Washington. Okay. Um, Kelly Miller. Yeah, James Patterson Green. Okay. Um, people like that, people who were um, real shapers, I think, yeah. of, of black politics. Yeah, at like the academics, time. lawyers, um, essayists, like started magazines. Yeah, all of that. Oh, very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. So in this work, I want to hear. I want to hear one of your poems. I think okay. we all need to hear one of your poems. I just want to ask one quick more question okay. about what that work actually. So, what do you do? What do you make, uh, kind of on a daily basis in this project? Such a good question. The real answer is I don't know. But the technical answer is, is most of my days look pretty basic in that I am finding letters um, that he wrote to a specific amount of people. So if I'm like one to Booker T. Washington, he talked to a lot to Booker T. Washington. I like to say that they were like frenemies, um, whether to Booker T. Washington or um, W.B. Boys or any of those people. So I'm finding them. So I write a lot of like semi-professional emails to libraries. Okay, so these letters are scattered across different archives? Yeah, okay. across tons of archives. And then I transcribe, which is I just like type them up and encode them, okay. like on an XML document. So a machine, so to make it so a computer can read it. Yeah, right? so, so it can be online and not in paper, so we can finally move out of the 17th century. Yeah, it'd be nice to be able to find all these in one place. It would be. Ah, if only something like that existed or could exist. Yes. Mm. Okay, I think it's time for a poem. Okay. I love poetry. Mm. I guess I could read you the poem that I read to the meeting of people that I was at where I tried to convince them to kick the white supremacists off campus, but all I got was a t-shirt. Hmm. So So. awesome. That's the case. (laughs) So, let's see. Let's see. Mm Mm-hmm. This was when they say there's a white supremacist on campus. So the campus puts out a lot of emails. I don't agree with many of them. And um, I don't this was, it's the email they put out. It was something like, oh, but next time, or we'll catch him like when he finally does something or something like that. And I was like, that's not how that works. Um, right. He has not violated the law yeah something like that and i was strictly speaking mm-hmm. but was, we're watching in case he does something like, like that yeah it was crazy and then we love that i can't find it um yeah so this poem was based off of that and it's called enough next times so when the email says the white supremacist isn't currently a threat i imagine those words wrapped around my throat trying to convince me they're there for protection like an invisible caller, letting me know I'm only safe if I don't stray too far. He is not currently a threat, meaning not right now, meaning maybe before, maybe after, maybe when blood is spilled, when it stains their reputation, maybe they will send another email full of words like miscalculation and regretful, full of enough words to reave a rug they can sweep all of this under, but that's not even the worst part. The worst part is the next time. Next time, we will be more careful. Next time, we will take more precautions. But rest assured, there will be a next time. There is always a next time. 
powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know where we can, how we can lead out of that, the hole that I've dug now that we're all sad. Tell me a little bit about writing that poem. So this was, like I said, this was right after the email. And I remember so vividly saying it was, it was, it was that exact wording. Like he's not currently a threat. And I remember thinking two things. I was like, what does not currently mean? And I also remember thinking not currently a threat to you. Because he, at that moment, at the exact moment that that, that like video went out, he was a threat to every black person, every person of color, every homosexual. He was every Jewish I mean. person. Every, yeah, yeah, like the, they, he was, he was that he then turned into a threat then, but because it's like he's not currently a threat. I was like, not currently a threat to who? And so that's what I was thinking a lot about when I wrote this poem. That um, that focus on very minute uses mm-hmm. of language on the latent kind of potential of words mm-hmm. is a thing you, you do a lot. Um, it's in your poetry. It's certainly you know, in, the, in the work that I've seen you do in classes and also with the Chestnut Archive. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really, that's really interesting. Do you, you know, when do you, how do you know a poem is coming? Do you have a routine? Do you have? Do you let things hit you? Do you? I mean, is there a pattern there? Even? I know a poem is coming. I think the short answer is I never do. Okay. And the long answer is, whenever something happens, where I know no one will listen to me otherwise, mm. is when I can, because I always I can always write poetry. You know what I mean? Like if I needed to, like I've forced so many poems for classes. Like I can always write poetry, but whenever I like write poetry for me it's always if i say this to someone will they listen to me if it's not in a poem and that's how i do it so this was so performing this poem because i did i did choose to perform it at the meeting yes that's that's a different um it's one thing to put a poem out there and have people read it Mm -hmm. it's another thing to have to read it yourself in front of the they to which you're referring in that poem (laughs) it was it was very scary but it was also I don't know. I feel like poetry is a medium that people are, they easily absorb it in a way. Like it's, I feel like if I had just stood there and I was like, you guys are wrong. You guys have done this. They wouldn't have heard it. But I think that it was the way it was because of this poem that I was able to get to go to the idea community. Eddie able to have like my stuff in like a newspaper where they talked about it because it was, it was easier to swallow. And that's kind of what I'm all about when I do perform performance poetry or any kind of poetry it's like how can my message get to the most people and how will they be most easily able to accept it yeah mm-hmm. do you um do you, so let's talk about the performance poetry dimension of this you mm. are part of our slam poetry team i am part of our slam poetry team what does that i think i vaguely understand the slam poetry mm-hmm. concept this is right uh, how, how would you describe it and how would you describe what it means to be doing it, like, as a group? Right. Yeah. Okay. So imagine if you were good at writing but weren't cool enough to do a rap battle. Okay. That's this. very easy for me to imagine. <laughs> just so you know, that's 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 slam poetry for you. Okay. Um. No, but it's 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 a very interesting beast in that you're like, hey, here's my trauma, <laughs> here's um every bad thing that's happened to me. Um, beautifully performed in a poem, please grade me. <laughs> How does the grading work? It's, like, do you, I mean, you don't grade each other. You no. have judges. 
judges. Oh, yes, but a lot of the times the slam poetry is based, it's like, like the whole point is it's layman, so it's anyone who was in the room where they can find. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> so that means that sometimes you get people who don't want to hear a poem about blackness or right. don't want to hear a poem about how you feel about um, rape culture. Or right. So it's a, very, it's a very interesting thing. So that means not only are you being judged on the content now, because some people have biases in certain directions, you're not just being judged on how good the poem is, and that can be some of the flaws of the system. But the whole point is like to make poetry more accessible, right? Slam poetry. I see. So that so instead of it being like old school where it's like form is everything mm-hmm. and like did you obey either the rules or did you break them in a way that's particularly spectacular? Mm-hmm. Here it's here it's more fluid between what are you saying mm-hmm. and how are you saying it yeah. as far as how it's judged. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty unpredictable. It is. It's yeah. very unpredictable. Yeah. I can see it must be particularly unpredictable when you have judges like Robert Lipscomb. I mean, he's he's got a lot of sensibilities, I think, that are hard to predict. Yes, particularly Robert Lipscomb, I will say. Yeah. Particularly R. Robert Lipscomb, yes. Yeah, yeah. I I would be very intimidated, actually, in that, in that environment. It's very hard for me to imagine. And I did speech when I was a kid. Other things you don't know about me. I was in speech and debate. Mm-hmm. And I bet your speeches were very long-winded. I didn't give speeches. Oh, they would not let me freestyle. They were like, "Here is a script, young man. <laughs> Remember, this performance must happen in the space of eight minutes, or preferably less." <laughs> I think you should read us another poem. Okay. I just want to hear another poem because that was really powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think, but that's an occasion. That's an what you know, an occasional poem. That's that's one that, that had a particular um, setting and it had a particular venue, audience mm-hmm. you you know you were working with. So maybe something on a kind of different track as far as the where it came from. Okay, okay. Well, I mean, this kind of stemmed from the same idea, but this is a more consistent idea within my head, and it's okay. a more consistent conversation that I have on a day to day basis. The poem itself is called Dark Galaxies. I read a lot of poems about my mother because she talks often. And I love her. (laughs) Also that. Also I love her. Um, So this one is Dark Galaxies. Mama asked me if I want to go somewhere blacker. So when my skin ain't the bullet, it's someone else's gun. Where my existence don't scare the insults out of pretty white lady mouths. Mama want to know if it'd be easier for me to be dark somewhere dark. If I'd feel pretty in a place where everyone looked like me, talk like me, got slave ships on their shoulders and chains and they footsteps like me. But mama don't understand that too many dark skinned people in one place form a black hole that death like to go fishing in. I won't bait his hook on the skin of my smile, mama. Just cause white stars shine with ignorance on the backdrop of my dark hue after all, mama. It's only when brightness dance with the dark that we get galaxies. So this comes up a lot, especially because um, there is a specific beauty um, that we all that we've agreed upon as a society that's mainly focused on um, heteronormative um, white degree of beauty. And oftentimes, I come to my mother with these problems because I am I'm always going to be a black six year old. Um, in that it's like, I'm always like, Mama, why is this? Or Mama, why is that? And she says, um, one of the things that I remember her saying to me most vividly is she said that 
honey, you are a gazelle in a room full of elephants. You will never look beautiful to them. And so that was one of the conversations we had a lot where she's like, you need to, you're not going to be beautiful in a place where beauty is everything that you are not. So we talk about that a lot. That's well put. Mm -hmm. I won't bait his hook with the skin of my smile. Mm -hmm. That is a hell of a line. It is. And I think about that a lot because it's, I think that there's a lot of protection that comes with being surrounded by black people, but there's also a lot of fear in that you, there are more of you to hit. There are more of you to target, right? Um, And I think I've always, I've always kind of felt safer as like, the like one black person in like a room of white people because then my voice is unique. It's like different. It's not like a mob. It's not like, oh, you're just like you know what I mean. Yeah. So it's it's like a very very like weird place to inhabit. So there's that ambivalence of that poem where where it's sort of the tension between the domain of expression where mm-hmm. you're where you're understood and where you're mm-hmm. you know, part of a larger history. I have the slave ships on the shoulders mm-hmm. and so on. And then that thing, I think. I think that all poets are interested in doing a thing that's different, being heard in a way that has not been heard, mm-hmm. where you have not just, you have not been heard, but that has not been heard before. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's tough. And, that, and I think that's a, that's a really generative set of tensions. It, I can't, it's hard for me to imagine, I think, living inside those tensions both as a writer mm-hmm. and also as somebody who's like, a junior in college, you know, like because you got like there's a that there's you know nested forms. It is, of yeah. I'm like a freaking little Russian doll. Of John. <laughs> it's like crazy. <laughs> I want to ask you a question based on that. Okay. Um, you know, talking about your the way you're turning your experience of the particular atmosphere here not just here at Nebraska, but at this moment, mm-hmm. you know, in history and yeah, at this at this stage in your life where, you know, as you say, there's that, um, that sense that you're tied to relationships, that they are generative, but they're also limiting. Mm-hmm. Same deal with something like, like Nebraska, like, the, like uh, Nebraska U. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious more particularly about your experience in the English department like taking classes here, doing things like the slam poetry, um, because I, you know, I feel like it's, it's, a, it's kind of its own sort of environment within this larger one. And I'm just curious, you know, how you've, you know, how you've enjoyed that or what you, what you kind of see as valuable or limiting or whatever. Like, I, no, I completely agree. But I, because I also, I completely agree with the idea that this is, the English department is, is its own kind of beast. And I think maybe that's like with all kind of liberal arts things, because whenever I'm in a science class, I'm like one of 500 faces, right? And my opinion doesn't matter (laughs) because the facts are the facts are the facts. But there's something about like having the power to argue like point blank with your professor, just like strong arm. Like it's like you're just like um, having like a... (laughs) Oh, I remember. (laughs) I remember when you were like, this poem is terrible. Why did you make us read it? I had a, yeah, I, a lot in your class, but also, because there's just like, <laughs> there's something really freeing about just being able to argue with your professor and knowing that neither of you are right, which is just like really cool, um, which is what I like about the English department. 
And I feel like just in terms of being a black person and also alive, some of my best experiences have come from the English department because it's, I don't, a lot of times writers, especially poetry writers, but like fiction writers, it's usually much harder for them to be very racist. You know what I mean? Because they have to like constantly interact or like very like homophobic or anything like that because they have to constantly interact with people who come from different backgrounds and experiences, which is really nice. However, I promised a certain someone that I wouldn't name any names, but there was a, there was a specific instance in one of my classes where um, I found myself kind of like beaten down, like nearly day to day. And it was a class I, I thought I'd like, but just the fact that the, the professor who was obviously white um, was not so much like actively racist, but you could tell that they had, they, like, they had never thought about race in any serious capacity. And this led them to not listening to a lot of, especially because we were reading a lot of black poetry books. So this led to this person not listening to a lot of the black students' complaints or like they, she'd ask a question where it'd be something like, so what do you think this means in black culture? And then like a black person would respond with the correct answer and she'd be like, yeah, or, and I'm like, no. (laughs) So it was like, it's a really, that was like the only bad experience I can remember having. That and someone once told me that Mark Twain's writing was good for black people, which I also wrote a poem about, but it was- Really? Yeah. Hmm. Well, I teach Mark Twain Mm -hmm. and I agree, I think it's, I think that's a that's a tense. You know, one of the reasons to teach him is is to have a conversation about the limitations of the canon. Mm-hmm. To have a conversation about the relationship between what we think is beautiful writing or compelling writing or or innovative writing, and its effects on the world, mm-hmm. like its real kind of impact on everyday folks. You yeah. Know? But also on ideas about what American writing means, what mm-hmm. has meant, who we think of when we think about that. You know. Um, so what? So what is like the most fun experience that you have had? I mean, I'm this... gonna assume that we are talking about writing classes, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. So specifically, because I I said like some of the, my like two worst experiences happened in the English department. Yes, but also like a lot of the best experiences in my life. I'm going to shout this person out because this is a positive thing. Angel Garcia, Angel Garcia, if you're listening, you have been one of the best teachers, and I really appreciate you. He was my um, beginning poetry teacher. I have never taken a poetry class before I came to college, even though I've been writing poetry for a really long time. Um, and just the way that like that workshop was run and how there's like a really interesting line when you're an English teacher between like listening and like having your students run a conversation and also, but also like not talking too much, <laughs> which is a which is a hard line to like kind of stay on. But he did that really really well, and he like encouraged all sorts of poetry and he listened to everyone and he always had like such good feedback and he like came to one of my poetry slams mm-hmm. and he gave me like the best comment after and I made a he has a book we're gonna <laughs> he has a book it's called Teeth Never Sleep buy it on Amazon <laughs> um but he has a book and um he like our class like pitched together to buy him a mug nice. that say that said Teeth Never Sleep and Neither Do I <laughs> so I'm very proud about that. That was a great experience for me in that poetry class. That sounds fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I, I will never forget our Declan's class. And, and that was our, also an amazing experience. I that was a strange experience. That was you guys. A lot of our you like, guys a lot made of that the, whole thing happen because I did not know what I was doing, and I warned you that I did not know what I was doing. A lot of the students in that class 
like we'll still like stop each other and we'll be like, wow, Cohen, right? And we're like, yeah. And you're just you're like, is he in jail yet? Is that no, no, no? The bet I remember Olivia bringing up the list of things that I had said. Do you still have that? somebody had been writing down. But I looked at half of them and I thought, wow, this is litigation coming right at us. I of course I have that. I have That's it so framed. Hilarious. Yeah, I made a triptych out of it. I was, <laughs> I was like, I want to be able to see this every day when I wake up in the morning. This is amazing. Just to remind myself just how close I am to prison every single time I walk in front of a classroom. Oh my lord. Okay, one other experience I want to ask you about because it is a um, that kind of thing that I think is unusual for an undergraduate to do. You this this chestnut work that you did. You went and gave a conference paper at a major international. Conference uh, for textual scholarship. I did. I did. Can, can you tell me just a little bit about that? Because that's a now. I would say like there may be trying aspects to that kind of experience. Yeah. But also maybe learning possibilities and so on. New York City. Amazing. Yeah. Really cool. So tell me a little bit about that. So first thing is, um, maybe it's just because I'm just an undergrad, but I have never I had never written like a ten page paper before. Right. <laughs> that was difficult. Especially because it was, um, it was, it was like a conference paper, and I did not know what a conference paper entailed, or what that meant, or if it meant anything, or if it mattered. So there were a lot of. There, it was really interesting writing that. Um, it was also really trying. I said, I think, I, if I remember correctly, I want to say there's six drafts. I think it was about that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was me sending things to Ken. He was like, "Nope." And then he, said, Professor Kenneth Price, he was the he was the. Um, you're my current boss now, but he was my current boss, um, in the first year of care for anyone who's listening who didn't know. But I'd send things to him, and he'd be like, "Yeah, this is bad. Change this. Change this. Change this." And then send it back to me, and I just had to rewrite the paper. Um, but that was really difficult, but also really fun, because um, it was kind of collaborative in that way, and going to. New York to present a conference paper knowing that most people, A, had never heard of me, B, did not know what I was going to say or the words that would come out of my mouth, and then to do that and to have people like overwhelmingly like appreciate what had happened was amazing. It was amazing because it's kind of like, it's the kind of the same reason why I'm in slam poetry, right? Like I just, I like, like to hear myself talk and I want as many people to hear me talk as possible. See, I think, you know, and you did a poem in that in that talk, if I remember, I did, and I and I, you know, just thought. I remember looking at that and thinking, like, I, you know, you just don't go to a really old school conference like the Society for Textual Scholarship and see a whole lot of people who are giving not just a meta reflection mm-hmm. on what it means to be editing Charles Chestnut in today's climate, but also then, like, doing a poem that's inspired by that relationship. Yeah. And that, you know, that the struggles that Charles Chestnut faced Mm -hmm. as a writer in the age of Jim Crow, as uh, someone who was straddling the color line himself, who was straddling the North and South, who Mm -hmm. was really caught between a kind of desire to reach out to a big audience and also a desire to confront them with stuff that they did not want to think about, Mm -hmm. Um, to see you kind of sort of saying, well, you know, many things have changed, many things have not. There are forms of articulation that he didn't engage that you think are essential. You've been reading, you know, in your poems to us, mm-hmm. uh, exemplifying that. And there's others that are that are just those kinds of bell tones you hear time and time again over literary history. The, the kinds of things that, that writers have struggled with for 
for all of five hundred years yeah. at least here. Um, that it, it's it's very inspiring to see that. Okay, here's here's what I want to do. Okay, I think first I should read you a poem. Okay, is this a surprise? Because the other thing you didn't know. Oh no. Is that I used to write poems, and they are really bad. Oh, but the good. Know. But the good news is they're really short. And then I want you to read another poem. Okay. So we can go out on something good. Okay, here's my poem. Are you ready? No, but I'll listen to it anyway. Okay. I appreciate you. It's gone. The chair is gone. What am I going to put things on? Is that it? I told you that was bad. Okay. Here's another one. It's called Summer. The cockroach has come with the regularity of vitamins. The regularity of vitamins? Yeah, man. Are you 85? <laughs> I'm not going to reveal my age on, on recorded media. I wanted you to say national television there. I'm not going to reveal my age on national television. I do it on national television. You get me on national television, I'll tell you how to learn. Okay. Anyway, I just want you to see just how bad it can be. And then I think we had a clearer palette. So can, can I describe this scenario? Yes, please. Okay, so one of the things I remember we were thinking about with UCARE was very often they ask you to write something about your experience. Mm -hmm. And they're thinking, I, I think they're thinking, we need to show the value of the experience to each student. We need to capture the particular research that they're doing and this will be in some medium that we can put out there as PR, basically. Yes. So I do remember last year, wasn't there a poster session over near the Capitol? Yes. With like the state senators and representatives mm -hmm. were all like there, and that was super cool. That was very cool. But we thought maybe it would be more interesting, actually, since you're a poet, to have the poems be, like to have you write poems in this scenario. Right, as my response. Right? I, however you wanted to do it. I also don't think we ever got approval to do that. We may not have asked for permission. Because <laughs> that's what English is all about. <laughs> yeah. Instead, we just made them take it. So uh, so you wrote a bunch of them. I don't remember how many. I did. Um, I think right now there are 13. Okay. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could, could give us one of those and, and tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. So these, um, they're more of a historical poetry thing. So I kind of write what I, because these are all both based off of quotes that Charles Johnson has actually written in books of poetry. So I say the date, I say who was writing to, and I say the quote, and then I um, do a poem about it. This one is called Destiny, and it's a golden shovel poem. Okay. This is like kind of like the, where every line of the last, like every word of the last line creates uh, the sentence. The quote was, um, he was, he was talking about Negro journals, but he said sarcastically, or maybe really, because this might be correct, um, thinking white people who after all are the arbiters of our destiny, talking about black people. Mm. So the poem is called Charles Chesna and Bianca Swift decide to write a book. <laughs> and that's the, as fun as it gets, because it just gets sadder. <laughs> so, Charles Chesna and Bianca Swift decide to write a book. Let's write a book full of all the names we have lost. 
not on white sheets though, lest we get paper cuts. Let's make it with the ground bones of all the black people who have died so we can be this unfree. Let's make the paper from fresh plucked cotton. Are we not the best to run through the mill too? And after, let's soak it in the deepest waters of the Atlantic, all brown and black and beaten back. Let it bathe or drown or be zong ship gone down. The binding should be done by my mother or yours. Hands the color of Mississippi soil. Black women always be the arbiters of the black soul. Only fair they mend it too, of course. We will dedicate it to them though. Make sure they aren't left out of our feral cries into the night. Page is bloody from all of our collective bodies and when the book is done, though I'm not sure it ever will be, We'll call it destiny. Beautiful. Yeah. Really, really beautiful. Thank you. And tough. Yeah. Difficult. Yeah. Because there's um, there's this interesting line where no matter what you write about blackness, you're always writing it, writing it for white people, which is hard. I mean, that even happens in a lot of classes, right? Because when you take black history classes, they're not for you. Like, they're not teaching black history for black people because we know it. Right, it's for it's for like the white people who happen to accidentally go in that class. Like it's it's always for like no matter how much our blackness is about us, it's also about the culture of whiteness that we live in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you did a little traveling this summer. I did. Was it, you know, I mean, how did you understand? How did you feel that kind of? Uh, that kind of racial tension, the kind of gaze, the kind of assumptions Mm -hmm. when you were in Europe. Was it similar, different? It was... What came through? Different in the way that... Well, first things first, I think that... European racism is a lot more subtler than American racism. They're better at it. They've been doing it for longer. <laughs> they've, they've perfected it, if you will. Um, so it's a lot subtler. So there are certain comments where you, they'll say it and you'll be like, oh, thank you. And then like later, you're you're like, you're, oh, they're wait. like, oh, wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that. Um, or, and then and then also it's it's kind of on a different bar because people, they're still like anti-black. Nearly everyone's anti-black. But it's also kind of along the line of like immigration which you can tell is like Very a rough thing, so. and it's, but they'll talk about that more casually. So like, I speak very, very little French, but I like, like enough, like I understand enough that I'll be, like catch like phrases and a lot, they're just like so frank the way they like talk about immigration. They don't like it. Um, first things first, let's put that out there. So that was kind of difficult, but I mean, it's in the way of, I don't know if I expected anything different. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Yeah. So a different style, a different set of priorities. Mm-hmm. Although I think those are shifting in America too, and I think that's one of the one of the kind of dangerous things about the moment that mm-hmm. we're in. And I think you know you capture that really well by moving across different forms. Um, well, actually, literally forms, because at least with this assignment, you were doing you with, were yeah. experimenting actually with, with this with my poetry for you care. I'm doing a a different um, poetic form or poetic. Um, um, structure in every single poem that I write. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You're famous actually for saying that you really would have to go, as I recall, below rock bottom before you would write a sonnet. I'm not famous. What? I'm famous only in my workplace. Yes. 
I think your workplace is very important, but I mean, is there, so what is wrong with the sonnet? And this, this is, I'm, I swear, I'm not going to push this, okay. but I'm just curious. The only issue that I have with the sonnet is that I feel like it's inaccessible for a lot of people. Okay. Because oftentimes I feel like sonnets are written for other poets. And I, that's not my, that's not who I want to access. That's not who I'm trying to get to because other poets already know what I have to say and they already understand it. Because essentially most of the poem, poems I write is racism is bad, treat me like a human. And I don't need to tell poets that because they get it. <laughs> so my poetry, I, like, I'm, I'm not going to write a sonnet because I don't, not that I don't care about these people, but I don't care about these people because they know, they understand. And the people who I want to listen to me are the ones who aren't going to read sonnets. They're going to read the four-line poem that has words that they understand and don't, like, use any, like, fancy turns of phrase. You know what I mean? Like, those are the people yeah. I'm trying to get to. I feel like even when you're using traditional form, you got a non-ad in there, you've got a couple of other, you know, pretty traditional forms. Mm -hmm. Even it's the, the, your use of language really, in a way, breaks out of, it, it, it almost, not that it breaks the form, the form is still there, mm -hmm. the sonic kind of harmonies are still there, you you play with rhythm in really interesting ways, moving in and out of speech, for mm -hmm. example, or dialogue, mm -hmm. but I feel like there's there's just the this real kind of urge for connection that, that permeates your language, and that really, it puts, it, it kind of holds off the form's desire to make everything into a formula or to yeah. make it into a coded message or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, so I think, I, I don't know. I yeah. Think it's working. yeah, thank you. So um, I did you write poetry when you were overseas? Did I write poetry while I was overseas? No, but I started a lot of poems. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm very much looking forward to seeing those. I think we probably need to wrap this up because... Mm -hmm. We'll um, be back at the same time next week. Well, you have to get back to work. Right. I mean... There needs to be more Charles Chestnut in this world. I am so grateful to you for sharing your poetry with us and your stories. Thank you. And I'm really, really uh, lucky to have been able to work with you on these projects. I've learned a lot and I've been inspired. And, and you always keep me humble. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, I was... I'm very excited to be on this podcast. Um, I'm... <laughs> It was a very interesting thing for me to be able to speak um, candidly. Because I feel like we have these conversations a lot, but not so often does someone put a microphone in front of us and is like, you get to do this. Um, yeah, usually they're telling us to be quiet. <laughs> which is very cool. So I really appreciate this opportunity. And I do appreciate you because you're a great boss. No other boss would let me see their social security card. Um, <laughs> you're a great boss, a great teacher. And I really appreciate that. Um, and I... I feel like keeping you humble is in reference to maybe the compliments I give you, but I just want you to know that they're true, they're genuine compliments. I'm just bad at giving them. I I need as much I need as much restraint as I can be given. Absolutely. Um, I am also excited about this podcast series, and I want to encourage everybody who's listening now to stick with us because all right, this was pretty good. But you are not going to believe some of the stuff that you're going to be hearing down the line. This is an amazing community with a bunch of amazing thinkers, outstanding speakers, poets, writers, teachers, students of all kinds, lecturers, folks who have a passion for literature that really defies the imagination. 
and they have they have changed so many people's lives here. So I'm super excited about it. Me too. Plain State is produced by Robert Lipscomb, post-production by Stephen Ramsey, music by Shadows on a River. Special thanks to Matt Cohen, Professor of English, and to Bianca Swift. I'm Matt Gonzalez. On behalf of the Department of English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, thank you for listening to the Plain State Podcast. Tagline forthcoming.